Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first of this IPS Northern Lecture Series by Professor Tan Tai Yong, the sixth SR Northern Fellow. Following his lecture today, Professor Tan will take questions from the audience in this hall and the rooms outside. The Q&A session will be chaired by Mr. Yatiman Yusof, member of the Singapore Bicentennial Advisory Panel and non-resident High Commissioner of Singapore to Kenya. Today's proceedings will be recorded and shared on the IPS website and our social media pages. For now, may I invite Mr. Janadas, IPS Director, to give the opening remarks. Professor Wang Gangwu and distinguished guests, welcome to the sixth IPS and other lectures. We are honored to have Professor Tan Yong as our 2018-19 SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Professor Tan is the first academic to hold this fellowship. The rest were either distinguished public servants, four of them, or entrepreneurs, one of them. Tayong is our first professor, academic teacher, a bona fide historian. Though as far as I know, he hasn't yet swum across the English Channel. Um, <laughs> We were always going to have Tai Yong as one of our SR Northern Fellows. He's a natural. But we appointed him this year, not least because of the bicentennial next year, the 200th anniversary of Stamford Raffles' arrival in Singapore. We thought it would be appropriate time for one of our eminent historians to reflect on our history, on all of it, not only the 53 years since our independence, or even the 200 years since the gentleman pirate uh, made a stop here. I didn't know when we appointed Taiyong that we'd be having a quarrel the past week about Malaya, our unofficial or illegal Independence Day, or whether we should pine for a reunion with the former Federation of Malaya. But actually, we shouldn't be surprised with such eruptions. As I've remarked elsewhere, and if I may, I, quote, I plagiarize myself, nothing that happens in the universe ever is past. I do believe, to quote T.S. Eliot, a poet, time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been and what has been points to one end, which is always present. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. A people who forget history will perish. I fear we might become such a people. Raised in clover and accustomed to success, we have come to regard ourselves as self-created, self-sustaining, self-perpetuating entities. What is, is, we have no antecedents, history is bunk. So some of us have come to believe, for instance, that we were never vulnerable, that vulnerabilities are myths, lies, only a people who forget their history can delude themselves so. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. What does this mean? It means the parts not taken, as well as the parts taken, remain always possibilities now. It means the risks avoided, the successes attained, 
the dangers circumvented, the achievements chanced upon, all are never ever wholly voided or erased. It means our history, all 53 years now, since independence, a triumphant arc that bend always towards sunlit uplands, our history can still turn tragic. And when I say our history, it can extend beyond these 53 years. If I may speak on a personal note, I've always been fascinated by history, by the stories of the past. I remember how riveted I was when I first read Mr. Lee Kuan Yew's Battle for Merger radio talks. It wasn't quite history at that point when I read it. He delivered the talks in 1961, following the split in the PAP. And I first read the accounts in 1964, when I was 10 years old. I remember clearly when I did so, before it was one the same day as the results of the Malaysian general elections that year was being announced on the radio. So there I was, listening to all but one of the nine PAP candidates being defeated in the Malaysian polls, and simultaneously reading Mr. Lee's accounts of the events in Singapore in the 1950s. Among the eight or so books that had the biggest impact on me as a teenager and a young man, three were histories. They were Jawaharlal Nehru's Discovery of India, his glimpses of world history, and H.G. Wells' outline of world history. These are all not academic historians. And I'm sure they are all outdated. But I still think they are worth reading and rereading. Why? To quote one of my favorite quotes of Churchill, history with its flickering lamps stumbles along the trails of the past, trying to reconstruct its scenes to revive its echoes and kindle with pale gleams the passion of former days. I'm sure that does not define academic history writing, but I believe that is what draws most of us here, common readers, to history, so as to kindle with pale gleams the passion of former days. Dayong, we expect great things from your six lectures. <laughs> Welcome. Um, thank you, Janadas, for that very warm um, welcome and introduction. I hope you've not set me up for failure. <laughs> uh, I will try not to disappoint. And I have tried swimming um, 50 meters from shore. That's as far as I managed to get, not across the English Channel, but it's Changi uh, Beach. <laughs> well, good evening, everyone. And um, well, thank you all very much for coming to attend this lecture. Let me begin by saying that I'm deeply honored to be the sixth SR Nathan Fellow and to be in the distinguished uh, company of my illustrious predecessors. I'm especially thrilled to be holding a fellowship carrying the name of Mr. SR Nathan, a man who has a great sense of history. I've had the benefit of spending many hours recording his oral history and have been captivated by stories of his personal life and different parts that he had played in a Singapore story. Now, understanding context is a key attribute of any historian worth his salt. And the context of my appointment to the fellowship is not lost on me. Come 2019, Singapore will officially mark the bicentennial, 200 years since the arrival of the British in a person of Thomas Stamford Raffles. Major historical anniversaries provide an impetus for historians as well as the general public to reassess the way certain events or individuals have been written about and remembered 
or excluded and forgotten. They also offer a chance for official political and historical narratives to be reinforced or reframed. Thus, when it was announced that a bicentennial would be commemorated, it was not surprising that questions were asked if we should be celebrating the founding by a British imperialist, and whether we should be proud of the fact that from 1819 to 1963, Singapore was ruled as a colony. There were other concerns. Should we still be wedded to the idea that all our history began in 1819 and that we have no meaningful past before the arrival of Raffles. Not unexpectedly, the organizers of the Singapore Bicentennial have been at pains <clears throat> to stress that rather than a celebration, the Bicentennial is a time to reflect on the nation's journey. There are plans for projects that will explore the 500 years before 1819 to allow the full complexities of history to emerge. The act of historicizing is, of course, never straightforward. Interpretations of Singapore's past have been freighted with questions and contention over openness, access to official records, and omissions. Several opinion pieces in the Chinese and English broadsheets have asked how we should be engaging our history. One opined that all societies cannot avoid an inherent tension between history and politics. But the mature and correct attitude lies in respecting historical facts while retaining an openness towards all possible interpretations of those facts. It adds, only by having an open-minded attitude towards history can we better understand and employ it as a compass for the future. Another argued that the freedom to grapple with and understand history in one's own terms should be a mark of society's maturity and liberalization. Writing for the Straits Times, Elgin Toh hoped that the bicentennial can provide an opportunity to fully explore Singapore's past, past, both the good and the bad. These are important questions, and as planning for the bicentennial gets underway, they will need reassessing. So my tenure as the SR Northern Fellow for the coming year is timed, I believe, to contribute to an ongoing conversation about our history. I use the word conversation advisedly uh, because the lectures that I will be giving in the course of the next several months will not be a history course or history module delivered in a didactic manner. I will not be attempting to, um, to teach history or to tell you what you should know of our history. If I succeed, these lectures may perhaps suggest how to think of our history. Ultimately, I hope to stimulate thinking about our past and what history should mean to us as a society and a country. A small caveat before I begin, I'm not a historian of Singapore. I started my academic life specializing in South Asian stroke Indian history and did my doctoral work at Cambridge University on colonial Punjab. My earlier publications were on the Sikhs, Punjab, and the partition of India. I came to Singapore history a little late and have had the benefit of learning from several friends and colleagues who have dedicated their careers to studying Singapore history. This series of lectures does not all represent my original research. They will be a synthesis of a large body of work that has been developed over the past few decades. I will draw on these works and I wish to thank in advance all the scholars who have helped educate me on Singapore history.
In today's lecture, I will analyze the state of history in the three phases in which our history has been written, a post-65 national narrative, the colonial period, and a longer pre-1819 past. I will then attempt to cast a broader frame to make a case for a connected history marked by cyclical changes, occasional ruptures, significant pivots, and underlying continuities. Singapore has taken many forms, and I will highlight certain consistent dynamics that have shaped its evolution. Now let me start at the beginning. Well, at one of the beginnings, and not, the not of the history of Singapore, but of the national project of writing the history of Singapore as a nation state. This conceptual differentiation between history as a set of events and the writing of history is the key to understanding why the official history of Singapore is the way it is, why it will inevitably and always be contested, and how it has evolved and will have to continue to evolve. In a sense, the writing of an official history and a people's experience of this history is not unique to Singapore. The writing of history is done by subjective human beings. These are fallible individuals relying on imperfect and incomplete information with their particular personal biases and perspectives and who reflect the needs and values, the hopes and fears of the society at the time of writing. This determines the identification of salient facts and colors their presentation. The British historian E.H. Carr concluded that history is an unending dialogue between the present and the past. The historian, he says, starts with a provisional selection of facts and a provisional interpretation in the light of which that selection has been made by others as well as by himself. With these caveats, we can better understand how the official history of Singapore as a nation state has solidified into a dominant narrative that is clear and consistent, and which goes like this. Singapore was an accidental nation. Its birth was beset with existential challenges, and the ensuing story is one of struggle for survival and success. In fact, in the first few years of independence, we did not have much of an official history. History or history writing was not an urgent priority for the People's Action Party or the PAP government. The immediate needs were to establish the state and government, stabilize the economy, ensure social harmony, and survive challenges to its independence in a tough neighborhood. There was no time to mull over the past or worry about recording the present for the future. History could not contribute to the priority of nation building and economic growth. In fact, the past, especially the recent past, was regarded as an obstacle to Singapore's progress, and so Singaporeans were exhorted to look to the future instead. For Singapore's political leadership, dwelling on Singapore's past could lead our, people's back, our people back to medieval ties of race and older allegiances uh, to tribe and faith. They were seen as sources of Singapore's social and political vulnerability rather than strengths. The then Secretary General of the National Trade Union Congress, Mr. Devanaya, the dark past was to be differentiated from the ordered and hopeful present, with the turning point being PAP rule. However, from the early 80s, the government began to show concern over Singaporeans' understanding of national history. Singapore had survived its tumultuous early years and done well economically. But this also meant that the Singapore of the 80s was quite different from the Singapore that had exited the Malaysian Federation. Singapore leaders were now worried that Singapore's rapid transformation and development would mean that its young had no grasp of the past. 
Singapore's young lacked personal recollections of the turbulent colonial and Malaysian era of Singapore and had gone through less hardship than their parents and grandparents. The leaders feared that Singaporeans would start to take Singapore's existence and success for granted. The first official historical narrative then focused on a generally benign and progressive colonial administration, the political changes that led to the establishment of the PAP government, a short period of post-independence economic struggle, regaining of socio-economic stability, and an optimistic growth trajectory. The making of this simple tale was anything but simple. For instance, the place of Raffles in Singapore's history was briefly in doubt in Singapore's early post-independence years. There had not been consensus among the first generation of PAP leaders over whether or not to retain Raffles as a key part of Singapore's historical narrative. Well, then Foreign Minister, um, Mr. S. Rajaratnam, declared in 1984 that nominating Raffles as the founder of modern Singapore was accepting a fact of history. He acknowledged that there had been debate over this given the PAP's anti-colonial roots. Singapore's attitude towards our colonial past was not entirely one of straightforward acceptance, and it has continued to evolve. Now, you're going to hear Raffles' name mentioned a few times in my lecture, because obviously he had changed his mind a couple of times in the course of history in terms of whether or not to accept uh, Raffles and what was Raffles' place in Singapore's history. In fact, beyond this simple history, Singapore's past had its fair share of difficult, contentious moments. There were the vicissitudes of colonialism, political transitions, racial tensions, fierce ideological contestations, and merger and separation from Malaysia. But while the attenuated official narrative would appear inadequate today, given that we now know a lot more, it is understandable when we consider the con contemporary context of why the history of Singapore was written like that in the 1980s. The shift in the authorities' attitude in the 80s meant that history that was formally dropped from a school curriculum in favor of more useful uh, studies directed at Singapore's industrial needs was now reinstated. The first textbook uh, was issued to Singapore schools in 1984, and you could see who was featured very prominently there. Numerous political leaders reiterated the importance of remembering Singapore's uncertain beginnings and the lessons of other nations' rise and decline in order to sustain Singapore's existence and prosperity. National education was introduced into Singapore's curriculum from 1997. It was to be implemented across subjects in a formal curriculum, with history being just one of them. Ministry of Education's justification for NE, National Education for short, was that school-going Singaporeans were largely unaware of Singapore's past, association with Malaysia, and demonstrated little interest in nation-building. Thus, NE set out to make sure students were acquainted with basic knowledge of key moments in Singapore's national history and strengthen students' sense of national identity and emotional attachment to Singapore. According to then Deputy Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong, the Singapore story that was to be taught under NE was objective history seen from a Singapore standpoint. The introduction of NE curriculum was timed closely with the staging of the exhibition The Singapore Story, Overcoming the Odds, and the launch of then Senior Minister Lee Kuan Yew's first volume of memoirs, The Singapore Story, Memoirs of Lee Kuan Yew. 
Why did he write his memoirs? According to him, he said that he had not intended to write uh, his memoirs, but was reminded by his colleagues that you know, Singapore, young Singaporeans needed to know the difficult years of early nationhood. And he decided to write because he was troubled by the overconfidence of a generation that has only known stability, growth, and prosperity. His memoirs, while personal, were presented as an authoritative history. Together, these developments reinforce history's place on Singapore's nation-building agenda. The Singapore story has since become inextricably tied to Mr. Lee Kuan Yew's account of his experience of that history as the key player, with the PAP as Singapore's dominant political force post-independence. For PAP, Singapore's success has vindicated its correct rather than populist decision-making and its role as Singapore's dominant political force. The PAP had worked with its opponents reluctantly, if only to ensure Singapore's transition from colonialism to self-government. This account of Singapore's early nation-building years served to buttress the legitimacy of the government of the day and its system of governance. Indeed, in one of the earliest telling of this story by Mr. S. Rajaranam, Singapore's first foreign minister, the PAP was an innocent novice pitted against more experienced but ill-intentioned groupings. Mr. Rajaranam's PAP's first 10 years, which appeared in a PAP 10th anniversary celebration souvenir in 1964, provided the first signed account of internal party history by a PAP leader and minister. His narration of history legitimized the PAP in opposition to its political force. This narrative has since become a template not just for the PAP, but for Singapore history too. Like other national histories, Singapore's national narrative was written to inform readers of the nation's past <clears throat> by appealing to the immediacy of the past to the present. The Singapore story of the PAP's leadership emerging as public figures became a reference point used to understand the present. Past and present PAP leaders have been portrayed as firm, capable, and having foresight. Indeed, the dominant narrative was built around the role of the PAP and Lee Kuan Yew, and the story was a teleology of progress from adversity to success. A former graduate student of the history department wrote, a Martian with only the official script would think that there is only one political movement in Singapore, the PAP, two important personalities, Stafford Raffles and Lee Kuan Yew, and three dates, 1819, 1942, and 1965 that are worth remembering. So it was on the, on, on the basis of that kind of framing that this um, narrative became entrenched in the consciousness of Singaporeans. So we all grew up believing that Singapore story started in 1819 with the landing of Raffles, that colonialism bought, uh, brought some benefit, modern infrastructure, people, and wealth through trade. The modern state of Singapore was apparently built on the benefits of colonialism and overcoming many of its downsides. This is best illustrated by the decision to retain rather than cast Raffles' statue into the Singapore River. Lee Kuan Yew revealed in his memoirs that it was Albert Winsimius, Singapore's economic advisor, who suggested that letting the statue of Raffles remain would be a public acceptance of Britain's colonial legacy. This would send a positive signal to investors. Even as Mr. Rajaratnam acknowledged 
in the 1980s, the, the irony of the PAP selecting Raffles as the nation's founder, despite its anti-colonial roots, the party had deemed it the best choice. Thus, unlike most other post-colonial states, Singapore embraced its colonial past. Pragmatism drove this decision, which served as a starting point in the Singapore story. It helped that Singapore had not gone through a period of mass-based nationalist movement or revolution like many of its regional counterparts. In this way, colonial exceptionalism, war, and the Japanese occupation, the tensions of the 50s and the 60s, all fed into the Singapore story. The decision was made to present Singapore story as a straight arrow trajectory with clear positive outcomes. And this is how we arrived at the familiar refrains from colony to nation, the struggle for success, and third world to first. So this is seen as a very straight, one-way trajectory from a downside to progress. In many senses, this trajectory is not inaccurate. The story from 1965 was indeed one of significant growth and development. Use any economic and social indicator to compare Singapore between 1965 and 2015, and the story of amazing growth is immediately obvious. There were also the values that went into that success story, resilience, meritocracy, good governance, multiculturalism. These values and the attitudes could then bind Singapore's different ethnic groups together on the level of ideology. Asian values were interwoven into Singapore's national narrative and then repeated in national education efforts in the schools. From a state and nation-building perspective in Singapore's early years, the adoption of this straight arrow trajectory made sense. But prosperity was not to be taken for granted. Neither was it a foregone conclusion. Lee Kuan Yew admitted in 1983 that the past 24 years were not preordained, nor is the future. There will be as many problems ahead as they were in the past. The way Singapore society and government were arranged and constituted, as well as their values, had their basis in historical and contemporary challenges. And here, context is very important to understand. However, these were not always clear, particularly during a period of prolonged peace and stability. People forgot why things were set up the way they were in the 60s and the 70s. Clearly, a deeper analysis and interrogation of the sources of Singapore's strengths and weaknesses is due. If the current narrative survives following this review, then it would be on a firmer foundation. If it is shown to be inadequate, then it needs to be renewed, changed, and buttressed. Indeed, as time passes, Singaporeans are asking more questions and wanting to know more. Is the main narrative glossing over elements of our history that we did not have much knowledge of? Has our history been dominated by the stories of the winners? What about, the what about others whose histories have fallen, fallen by the wayside? Should we not know about those historical actors as well? Why is all history political history? What about social history, cultural history? What about the history of places, of neighborhoods, which are changing because of rapid development? There are calls, for instance, for more comprehensive, deep and nuanced accounts of the anti-colonial and left-wing movement of the 1950s. While the political battles between the PAP and its left-wing rivals have been reprised as part of the Singapore story, and in the memoirs of its participants wishing to give voice to their side of the story, it is perhaps timely for historians, given the passage of time and distance from the dictates of the Cold War, 
to exercise or to carefully historicize the events of the 1950s. Analysis should be done in the context of the period and its environment, which saw the complex interplay of many factors that included international communism, anti-colonialism, security calculations, merger with Malaya, power struggle, ideological contestations, and simply differing visions for the future of Singapore. To rule out this complexity and to focus instead on a single cause explanations of, for actions and events, or to cast perspectives from the benefit of hindsight is to miss the opportunity for a deeper understanding of and reflection on an important and defining episode of our recent past. What we need, therefore, is solid research, even while further polemics cannot be avoided. And to do this research as a historian, I think it's important that this research be made possible by the opening of official archives and sources so that proper studies can be done with uh, good materials. Then there is a need to understand Singapore's position as a city-state and its relations with the region and the world and its historically outward orientation. This is a theme that I shall dwell on in subsequent lectures. A dominant national narrative might be necessary for national education, but a good way of building historical consciousness is to instill it at a personal level and grow it organically. This can be done in schools, but also through self-discovery. Each of us need to know our country through grandmother and grandfather stories. At the same time, there should always be space for personal recollections and individual reflections that are not strictly historical studies. These can be essential elements for a larger, multifaceted story that is the history of Singapore. We are now seeing a renewed interest in studying Singapore's history more closely from different perspectives and at different levels. Our current official history is arguably not sufficiently fit for purpose and perhaps even its purpose of nation building needs to be re-examined and expanded. I hope that this effervescence can find space and support in various forms. Certainly, it is not sufficient to start understanding Singapore's history from 1965, so I turn to another beginning our colonial history. As I had mentioned earlier, unlike most former colonies, Singapore has embraced its colonial past in largely positive terms. The period of British rule having been co-opted into the Singapore story that I spoke of earlier. Modern Singapore, as the narrative goes, dates from 1819, when the British arrived on the island, signed a preliminary treaty with the Temanggong of Johor, and proceeded to set up a trading post. Colonial exceptionalism to wit, Singapore's transformation in the 19th century from uncompromising, unpromising island to successful port city, the Jap Japanese occupation, the political struggles of the 50s and 60s have their places within a teleological framework. It explains events and actions as either impeding or aiding the attainment of nationhood and thereafter progress from third world country to first world under the ruling PAP government. Early post-colonial sensibilities and historical baggage attached to colonialism make this period in Singapore's history less amenable to being incorporated smoothly into the nationhood narrative. So here is Mr. Rajaratnam again speaking at the opening of an exhibition organized by the National Museum Art Gallery. And this long quote, which I'm going to read and show some of it, extracts of it on the, on the slide, explains the tensions that um, went through their minds as they decided how to embrace uh, parts of the colonial history. 
So he said, for most, uh, most of the 170-year history following Raffles' purchase of this island for a few thousand Mexican dollars is not something Singaporeans like to proclaim from the rooftops because all of that history was British colonial history. The only proven history Singapore had was, in the eyes of most nationalists, a shameful episode of exploitation, oppression, and humiliation of a people who insisted on remaining in Singapore. Patriotism required that we perform some sort of collective lobotomy to wipe out all traces of 146 years of shame. So he first acknowledged that this period of colonialism was a period of shame, and we should excise it from our consciousness. But after Singapore became independent, there was agitation that the statue of brooding raffles in front of Victoria Memorial Hall should be torn down and flung into the Singapore River to symbolically reject our past. Fortunately, he said, Sanity prevailed in the nick of time. Not only was Raffles' death by drowning commuted, but by way of apology, he now has a twin brooding brother brooding beside a Singapore river, now free of industrial and other ways. Unfortunately, the passion to wipe out 146 years of shameful history until quite recently burnt unabated um, in the iconoclastic hearts of our single-minded city planners and real estate developers, businessmen, bankers, and others who decided that Singapore's history should start from 1965 and that everything in our city should not be older than 20 years old. There is a Singapore history, according to Rajaratnam, the only history which we have and which can explain why we are what we are and why we must be different from our alien and distant cousins whose less adventurous fathers wisely or unwisely elected to miss the immigrants' vote. So a present-day reading or critical reading of Mr. Rajaratnam's quote would undoubtedly throw up critiques, especially from a post-colonial perspective. It demonstrates how Singapore's colonial past has been appropriated, owned uh, by the, the ruling government to set the stage for the post-1965 story and cement the PAP's place in history. I'm interested in locating these views within a broader discussion on how Singapore's past had been constructed and presented. In their book, The Scripting of a National History, Singapore and its Past, historians Hong Lisa and Huang Jianli discussed the motivation behind the writing of an official history for the purpose of nation building. They argue that in the aftermath of Singapore's acrimonious separation from Malaysia in August 1965, an autonomous history of Singapore was eschewed as emphasizing the different and divided ancestries and loyalties of migrant population, which were thus best forgotten rejecting the option of scripting a credible pre-colonial past for fear that the price would be nativist claims on the part of the Malays who form 18% of the population which alienate those whose forebears from China, majority, and India, 76% decided to look towards an unencumbered future instead. The future of a modern Singapore that traced its roots to 1819 and drew on the legacy of colonial exceptionalism. So the idea was not to go before 1819, because if you went before 1819, you went into all these issues of tribalism and people wanting to trace different sort of roots. The most neutral party would be the British. All our, all our history would have started from them. Now with Singapore's history returning to the school curriculum, a narrative had to be found. And the inaugural edition of the two-volume textbook drew on the structure and theme suggested by historian Mary Turnbull, who is best known for her book, A History of Singapore, 1819 to 1975. 
Published in 1977, uh, Turnbull's work was not the first attempt at writing a history of Singapore. But her version, which was written in the belief that a distinctive national history was required for a young nation, was the first to be conceived as the history textbook for the newly emerging Singapore nation-state. Gone was the focus on uh, ancient history or world history and ancient civilizations stretching from 500 BC. No longer would the history of Singapore be taught simply as a brief appendage of the history of Malaya. Singapore's history now started with the arrival of Raffles in 1819 and led to independence in 1965. It can be seen as the precursor to the Singapore story, which emerged in the 1990s and has since established itself as the dominant version of the nation's history. Historiographical shifts in the writing of Singapore's colonial history did not take place in isolation from broader external developments. While historians continue to work along the lines as suggested by Mary Turnbull, uh, they were also influenced by other forms of uh, historical writings beyond Singapore. An older generation of history students trained at the University of Malaya viewed Singapore as part of the larger British Empire. Their history of Malaya and Singapore was gleaned from the archived records of the East India Company and the Colonial Office. After World War II, the writing of history underwent changes as Marxist and social history took root, as did the Annal School of Thought. In the field of Southeast Asian studies, the idea for an autonomous history, a history written from within, of Southeast Asia was advocated by John Smale and Henry Bender in the 1960s. Cultural history followed in the 70s and the 80s. As subsequent generations of Singapore students and scholars took up the study of history here and overseas, they were exposed to these historiographical trends, which in turn influenced and shaped their way of approaching Singapore's colonial history. Calling for the moving away of historical gaze from the high politics of the colonial state, many historians, such as Dipesh Chakrabarti, had said, consider for a moment what the results have been of incorporating into the discourse of history the past of groups such as the working classes and women. History has not been the same ever since a Thompson or a Hobsbawm took up his pen to make the working class look like major actors in society. Or since the time feminist historians made us realize the importance of gender relations and of the contributions of women to critical social processes. Similarly, the telling of Singapore's history has evolved. From just featuring pioneer Asians, immigrant made good, and businessmen who became community leaders, there was a trend in the late 1980s towards the writing of history from below, which endeavors to give voice and agency to the voiceless and marginalized and to ordinary people. Two notable works in this vein were written by American historian James Francis Warren, um, Rickshaw Cooley, um, People's History of Singapore, 1880-1940, which was published in 1986 in Aku and Karuki-san, Prostitution in Singapore, 1870-1940 in 1993. Over the years, historians have adapted their methods by turning to other disciplines such as anthropology. Oral history, literature, and literary thought are increasingly used in addition to archive, archival sources such as census reports and maps. Many historians have also heeded calls for the use of non-English vernacular sources, which would help widen their scope of research. Historians exploring Singapore's past are using new lines of inquiry and finding new ways of framing it. The focus on the study of the colonial past thus far 
has been on local developments within the colony itself. But historians have also been looking at broader developments, such as the emergence of networks driven by empire. A productive and useful approach to the study of the colonial past has been proposed by historian Tony Ballantyne. He explains in his work, Orientalism and Race, that the British Empire, as much as a spider's web, was dependent on these intercolonial exchanges. Important flows of capital, personnel, and ideas between colonies energized colonial development and the function of the larger imperial system. The metaphor of the web, he argues, holds several advantages for our study of the imperial past. It underscores the idea that the empire was a structure, a complex fabrication fashioned out of a great number of disparate parts or colonies that were brought together in a new relationship. Adopting such a framework allows historians to uncover networks and flows of personal capital and ideas between colonies, which had previously been obscured when colonialism was examined mainly as a metropole-focused history or, history or histories of individual colonies. Now, I'm going to argue that the study of Singapore would benefit immensely because it was a port city, it was a small city-state, from this sort of approach where you do not see developments just from within, but to understand it in a larger context of empire, of flows, and of impact and, and changes across a long period of time and across space. And this is a theme that I will continue to return to in my subsequent lectures. The emphasis on networks also brings to mind the study of history as ebbs and flows. This is applicable in the case of Singapore's pre-colonial past. Mr. Rajaranam has said of the period, what happened before 1819, if anything worthwhile happened at all, has been irretrievably lost in the midst of time. He was not alone in his views. Prof, uh, professor K.G. Tregoning, who was Raffles Professor of History, declared in an essay, modern Singapore began in 1819. Nothing that occurred on the island prior to this has particular relevance to an understanding of the contemporary scene. It is of antiquarian interest only. The history of modern Singapore may have started in the 19th century, but to insist that everything that happened before it is irrelevant is inaccurate. A Brodalian, long durée approach to the study of Singapore history will help uncover long-term change and continuity, which does not foreground 1819 or 1965 as definitive episodes. Singapore's historical evolution did not just take off in 1819, or rather the 200 years of colonial rule can be seen as a period in a longer cycle of developments that can be traced all the way back to the 14th century. So I now go on to the third part of my lecture, which is a pre-1819 colonial past. Since the 1990s, through the efforts of historians like John Mixick, Kwa Chong Guan, Peter Boschberg, Derek Heng, Imran Tajuddin, to name a few, our historical perspective has broadened with the chronology extending to include the pre-1819 past. We have been able to develop a clearer picture of a long stretch of Singapore's history long before the arrival of the Europeans. With the evidence from a combination of archaeological materials, classical texts like the Sejarah Melayu, regional court chronicles, the writings of early travelers to Southeast Asia, Chinese and European accounts, and cartography, we can no longer accept what Mr. Rajaratnam, Mr. Rajaratnam had argued before, that Singapore has no long past. Historians are now able to show that there was a continuous period of history, however disjointed, that stretches back to the 14th century, 
during which there were activities that Singapore either had a presence in itself or had a part to play in the maritime activities around the region. Such an account of Singapore's longer past needs to transcend the nation-state paradigm. In other words, we have to move beyond looking at Singapore as a nation-state to understand this longer history and has to be understood in the context of local conditions, the regional dynamics of the time, and the changes and transformations that were taking place in the region. So let me briefly sketch out the story of the pre-18 Singapore as we now know it. Shows that there, was, there were land settlements and differentiated space usage on the island from around the th late 13th century. Information gleaned from Chinese historical texts, Malay oral traditions, colonial accounts and archaeological data allow historians to reconstruct an urban settlement around Fort Canning Hill that included a palace precinct, the existence of a wall encompassing the, uh, encompassing the port city and a settlement in the north bank of the Singapore River. So this was a, a, recon, a reconstruction, a sketch of the, of the area around the Fort Canning Singapore River area. Singapore's history may be articulated as having begun in that period because there was a settlement on the island itself. And this is not to suggest, however, that there was no settlement before the 14th century, but it's just that the evidence that we have points to the start at this particular time. The polity that existed in the 14th century, which is then called Tomasic, we all know that, faded out towards the end of that century, caused by a multitude of factors that included environmental exigencies and shifts in the power configuration of the region. So thereafter, historians seem to think that Singapore faded into a kind of a black hole and nothing happened between then and 1819. And this is not true. Singapore did not disappear altogether. It became part of the Malacca Sultanate as the island settlement lost its political autonomy, owing to the rise of new regional powers in Siam and Java and an ascendant Ming China. The island's inhabitants, in particular the various Orang Lawud groups, became integrated as part of the larger Melayu body politic with its leaders having a place in the Malaccan court, while the port on Singapore gradually declined to become a secondary feeder port to the primary emporium of Malacca. By the 15th century, Malacca emerged as the premier emporium for the South China Sea and Bay of Bengal trade, a part of the Ming tributary network. According to Anthony Reid, Southeast Asia from 1460 to 1680 entered into what he called an age of commerce. Malacca was a point at which three different commercial networks from the South China Sea, South Asia and West Asia converged to trade. It thrived with attractive facilities, port charges and taxes, despite lacking the naval force to control or curse traders. The Ming Dynasty had participated actively in the South China Sea maritime world to satisfy Chinese demand for exotic goods at the time and to win Chinese favors and secure its position as the primary emporium in the Straits of Malacca, the rulers of Malacca sent tributary missions to the Ming court in 1405 and 1407, even traveling to the capital Nanjing in 1411. Singapore's story took another turn at the beginning of the 16th century following the Portuguese attack and capture of Malacca in 1511 and the establishment of the Johor Sultanate as the successor of the Malacca Sultanate. What happened during this period? Portuguese maps and correspondence in the 16th century referred to a Shah Bandar's office located in Singapore, serving as a local intermediary between the Sultan of Johor and foreign merchants. So this is a 
Portuguese map. Now you've got to invert the thing because Johor is now put in the, in the bottom. So you see the map of Singapore uh, on, the, on the bottom right hand corner. And there are some, notes, some words there that you might find familiar. Now, the, the, the description, the, the Portuguese navigators' reports that have been made available um, describe Singapore around early 1500s as a settlement larger than a village but smaller than a city. Ming ceramics found in Singapore, coupled with Chinese records, showed the significance of Johor in trading networks that stretched from Southeast Asia to Quanzhou and suggested that 16th century Singapore was very much part of that trading network. Cast within the context of shifting competition between the Johor Sultanate and Aceh for trade and political prestige in the Malacca Straits on the one hand, and the emerging presence of the Portuguese and Spanish trading empires and the Dutch East Indies Company in Southeast Asia and across the South China Sea on the other, the history of Singapore began to take a dual nature. As a settlement, it served as a collection center for the Johor Sultanate and home to the local naval armada formed by the Orang Lauts. At the same time, as the trade between East and West became increasingly integrated through the Portuguese, Spanish, and Dutch shipping and commercial networks, the waters around Singapore became increasingly important with the frontiers of Western cartographic and navigation knowledge being systematically pushed forward. I'm gonna just show you a couple of maps of, um, that um, historians have been using uh, from the 15th, 16th, 17th century uh, they were developed by the Portuguese and then later the Dutch. I'm showing the region. So their, their cartographic knowledge of the area was in a way um, triggered by the need to command the seas around this area. And you see that Singapore has always featured in, in, in one way or another in this part. So the knowledge of um, Southeast Asia, of Singapore's position, of its location in the trading networks uh, were all very obvious. Um, to uh, the Europeans. The developments of the 16th century culminated at the opening of the 17th century in intense conflict and competition in the waters around Singapore. So this is the coming of the Europeans. Singapore then became the arena of maritime conflict between the naval powers of Europe, Portugal, Spain, and the Dutch Republic. So this is a, a, a picture of a Dutch-Portuguese war uh, around the Singapore area. With Singapore's strategic significance to the European powers becoming increasingly apparent, the habitation history of the island ironically began to fade away. So what you see is a lot of movement around Singapore, but then the, the evidence of Singapore as a settlement started to fragment and nobody knew what really happened on the island itself. Cursory, cartographic and fragmentary archaeological evidence from the early 17th century of the continued existence of a port on the south coast of Singapore eventually gives way by the mid-17th century to the absence of any historical documentation of settlement activity on the island. Singapore's history shifted completely from a history driven primarily by habitation activities on land to a history driven primarily by conflict um, and competition at sea. So these this, this were the maps that I wanted to show you all about the presence of the Europeans. By the 18th century, the Dutch had established their base in the Indonesian archipelago with headquarters in Batavia. Internal political divisions in the Johor Sultanate um, um, court also led to the Johor Sultanate moving its capital to the Riau Islands by the late 17th century. 
the consequent shift of the maritime shipping networks from the southern end of the Malacca Straits further south to the Sunda Straits, Riau, Linga, Archipelago, Nexus led to the decline of Aceh as a trading centre and the loss of the strategic importance of the waters around Singapore to international shipping and commerce. So the, the, the centre of gravity started to shift south. This led to the decline in the overall fortunes of the Malacca Straits region and the establishment of the Dutch in the Riau Linga Archipelago. Thus, this set the, the regional context for the contestation between the British and the Dutch in the early 19th century at the cusp of the founding of Singapore by the East India Company. By this time, the region's centre had shifted to Bintan and Siak and trade to the Riaus. The demographics had also started to change, of the Straits of Malacca had started to change, with the Minangkabau and Bugis diasporas expanding into the peninsula and the Riaus, challenging the old Malay political order. Singapore, as the site of social memories about the ancestry of the Malay community, had become increasingly marginalised. The Shabandas office in Singapore was shut down and the sea lanes around the island fell into disuse. This now led to the part of the history that we are all more familiar with. Temenggong, Abdul Rahman and Tunku Hussein Long welcoming the British presence in Singapore, hoping to establish a new negri in Singapore to rival Bintan. The British were prepared to recognize Tunku Hussein as Sultan of Johor in return for the right to establish a factory on the island, benefiting him in the dynastic politics of the Malay world. So in a way, the national narrative that we, we were familiar with is not wrong in suggesting that Singapore was a sparsely populated mangrove swamp when Raffles landed in 1819. But even Raffles recognized that this was not always the case in the island, that he had chosen to set up a settlement for the East India Company. Raffles knew that the rulers of old Singapore might have been buried at Bukit Larangan, the Forbidden Hill, um, now Fort Canning, and chose to build his bungalow there in 1822 so that he could be located in the traditional seat of power. What I've attempted in the last few minutes was a compression of over 500 years of history. <laughs> if you are, so I'm doing a pitch now. If you are interested to know the full details, I will refer you to a forthcoming book, uh, which I and a few colleagues have put together, uh, the substantially revised volume of the 700-year history of Singapore. Uh, that will be launched, I think, next year, early next year, 20, 2019. So if you want the full story in its full details, I suggest you try to read that book. The long history that I've just outlined presents two main scenarios in Singapore's past. As autonomous societies and settlements on the one hand, and as societies and settlements that were part of a larger entity on the other. Autonomous societies in Singapore have only occurred three times in the past during the Tamasic period, late 13th to 14th centuries, the East India Company Strait Settlement period, 1819 to 1858, and the post-independence period, 1965 onwards. So what you've been reading in the press in the last few days about where Singapore belongs, its, its, its position vis-a-vis -vis Malaya, is something that is actually etched out in our history, and it's not something that has just been um, talked about recently. This oscillation, between being a separate entity and being part of a larger entity is one way of thinking about Singapore's long history. I now conclude. I will round off tonight's lecture with some thoughts on how we can develop a coherent frame of Singapore's history by viewing an extended period in terms of cycles, pivots, and continuities. Historians such as Peter Koklanis have argued that Singapore's history may be framed as a series of cycles that echo repetitively across time, 
thereby providing continuity and rationality for tying the disjointed periods together. Inspired by the historical concept of the long durée, this approach is premised on the timelessness of the geographical location of Singapore and set in the natural environment of maritime Asia. Within, within this contextual framework, Koklanis identified three cycles over the last uh, seven centuries that were anchored upon economic globalization. They were, first, the 14th to early 17th centuries characterized by the rise of the Ming Dynasty and the entrance of the European trading nations in maritime Asia. Two, the late 19th to early 20th centuries characterized by the importance of the China trade to Europe, European imperialism, and the establishment of imperial economies at a global scale, and the development of technologies that led to the compression of geographical space, so telegraph, steamship, and so on. And third, the 1950s to the present, characterized by the US-led world economic order and the systematic lowering of barriers to the movement of goods, services, and people across national boundaries. This period has seen a further compression of geographical space through the advent of technology. Applying this to Singapore, Peter Boschberg has identified three different upcycles in the 14th century during the period of Tomasic, the 16th and 17th centuries under the Johor Sultanate, during which time Singapore had a port administered by a Shah Bandar's office, and the 19th century through, the, through to the present under the British Empire and thence under Singapore's independent government. Hua Chong Guan, on the other hand, has argued that Singapore's settlement history may be understood as a series of cyclical echoes centered on the socio-cultural notion of the mantle of the Malacca Straits regional port polity, beginning with Sri Vijaya in Palembang in the late 7th century, followed by Tamasic 14th century, Malacca 15th century, Johor 16th, 18th century, and finally Singapore 19th century to the present. The above suggests that Singapore may be regarded as part of a cyclical history of a much larger geographical and cultural sphere. Where were the pivots? While the cyclical approach may offer a useful framework for analysis, I have been reminded by a dear friend that I should point out that these cycles should not be seen as occurring on the same plane. These cycles are often spirals. They do not always return to the same point. At various points in our history, Singapore pivoted away from a particular trajectory, changing its course of history. One could see 1819, for instance, as a pivot away from the Malay world onto something else, not in origin. And likewise, 1965, when we pivoted away again from um, the region and became a nation state with a global outlook. Yet underlying this cyclical approach across time and pivots in trajectories would be the place of Singapore. So I'm talking about the continuities now in a trans-regional setting. Singapore history bears out the notion that geography is destiny. In this regard, Singapore's history is continuously linked to its location, which in turn determined its role in trans-regional dynamics. In the case of economic globalization, Singapore finds its place as a commercial nodal point. In the case of regional socioeconomic mantle, of the Malay port polity, Singapore is the port city with, with its ruler not just exercising autonomy but also influence, Daulat, over a large region and a rakyat within that region. It is therefore important to assert that Singapore's history needs to be located within broader regional and international contexts. The critical periods and events in Singapore past may often be the result of de developments that occur much further afield and over long periods of time. So today's lecture sets the stage for my subsequent lectures, which will elaborate the argument that geography, regional networks, and globalization are indeed enduring themes in the history of Singapore and will perhaps continue 
to have a fundamental impact on the present and future of Singapore. Thank you very much. Prof Wong Gang Wu, Mr. Janadas Devan, Prof Antayong, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a very good evening to all of you. My name is Yatiman Ben Yusuf. First of all, I would like to thank uh, Prof Yong for giving a very compact, within 50 minutes, on the history of Singapore the thought behind it, the people who were responsible in coloring our history and setting the benchmark and also point of markers for the future generation to understand Singapore's history. Indeed, for a person like me, a non-history student, but being forced to teach history in secondary schools, your lecture had covered the depth and the breadth of which many Singaporeans are unaware of, yet quite a number of them are taking it for granted that someone will guide them somehow. This indeed is a very dangerous proposition. We need people who can actually share, convince, and compose the direction of Singapore history way back in the past until now. So that has been my, my impression, and I'm very happy to learn that within 50 minutes, Prof Tan is able to deliver the goods. Thank you, Prof. Now, to set the ball rolling, uh, may I be allowed to ask the first question? And this is uh, quite a simple question, you know. You said that uh, Conversation about history must be an ongoing process. Not only ongoing, but an open process. In our conversation, we need to consider what history should mean to us as a society and country. In this regard, you had drawn in your studies about the history of Singapore from a large body of work developed by earlier scholars specializing in history of the region. What are the areas in your mind uh, insufficiently covered and probably had caused misleading thought among many later scholars? That was my first question. Is it on? Yeah. Thank, thank you, Mr. Yatiman. Um, you know, I, I think there's still a lot of scope for us to develop um, our history because um, while um, there have been a lot of work developed in the past decades in Singapore history, um, there has been a dominant narrative and um, the stories have, built, have been built around this dominant narrative. So I think we should be able to pivot off somewhat, to use the word that I just used, uh, from this dominant narrative and try to see other layers of history that is not dominated by the Singapore story. So most things are framed in relation to the Singapore story, and I think that's fine, and I think the Singapore story has its place as a national narrative. 
But I think if we want to understand the complexities of Singapore as a society, as a city-state, as a nation-state, and with the kind of long history that I just outlined, we, we've got to look at many other things. So I suggested one um, um, idea earlier, and that is maybe we want to relook the period of the 50s and the 60s, or the early 60s, because the, the period was a transitional period, uh, post-war, to when Singapore then became entrenched as a nation state after separation from Malaysia. Now that was a very critical period where there was a plurality of different ideas of where Singapore could be heading. And I think we need to understand the complexities more, to understand why a particular route was chosen, why one group won, and why other group lost. So I think this will enrich um, the kinds of understanding of how we evolved uh, from a kind of a polyglot migrant population after the war to a nation state with a particular trajectory. So that's one example. Others, of course, is the is history of people, history of communities, history of institutions, history of neighborhoods. And I think I would like to encourage uh, more of such engagements. And I'm also very encouraged to see a history informing um, literary works, um, uh, fiction, uh, literature, art and all. And I think once we do more of that, then we're going to have a better appreciation. The history is not just what you read in a textbook in school, it's all over us, it's all around us. And each of us have a place in that history, and we must own that history. And I think the more we, we feel that way, um, the better it is for us as a country going forward. And now, may I invite questions from the floor and also from outside if there is any? We do have quite a sizable turnout on the outside and they are following through the screen. Okay, there is one question from the rear, please. Uh, good evening and uh, thank you, uh, Professor. Please uh, uh, state your name and where you come from. Yeah, sure. I'm about to do that. Uh, let me like to, let me say thank you, uh, Professor Tan, for the fantastic lecture. My name is Eric Sim. I'm from uh, Institute of Life. My question is: When did the first group of Chinese people first settle down in Singapore, and also when did the Peranakan culture uh, start? Oh, this is a very specific question. <laughs> let us scratch my head now. You know uh, when. Uh, Wang Dayen wrote his account of Singapore in the 14th century. You know, the, the thing I show you, the schema where, you know, there was a kind of a settlement in the 14th century. He actually made mention of uh, Chinese already in the mix of the population living north of the Singapore River. So uh, he commented they were living separately from the local population or something like that. So basically, if you go with that kind of evidence, then it, it would suggest that from the 14th century, there were already uh, Chinese you know, settling in Singapore. Then when, of course, uh, Raffles arrived in 1819, there were Chinese Gambia planters and all. So I think in the course of that few hundred years, you're going to see people sailing past Singapore, settling in, you know, because if you understand the movements of the area, they were all driven by monsoon winds, right? So sometimes the, the ships will come, they will settle there, they'll wait there for a few months for the monsoon to so turn around and sail back. So some people settled. So it's a, it's a bit hazy. The answer I'm giving you is a bit hazy, but the point is that there are you know, uh, this uh, evidence, if one were to just look at the text that we read, going all the way back to the 13th century. 
Uh, the Peranakan culture, I guess, it, 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 it's tied to this answer. When they started coming and settling in these parts of the world, in Malaya, Singapore, Indonesia, there were intermarriages, and then this new hybrid culture developed. It's over a period of years. It's very hard for me to give you a very de definitive answer when it actually started, but it probably evolved over several hundred years. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think I agree with that. If you go to Malacca, you can see a place named Bukit China. And uh, on the 15th century, Sultan Mansur Shah had actually brought in a princess from China known as Hang Li Po. You know? And Hang Li Po settled in Malacca. And they went through Singapore at that time, on the 15th century, was also part of the Southeast Asian uh, maritime uh, uh, ports. So I think uh, there has been early presence of the Chinese in Singapore, as well as Malacca. On the Peranakan side, I think, unlike Malacca, where they have a very distinctive location for the Peranakan community, in Singapore, they are somehow uh, not, not very clear in that way. Yeah? Thank you. Second question? Yes, please. Um, from what you tell me... Oh, sorry. My name is Tan King Soon. I'm from the Tan Kiam Foundation. Uh, from what you tell me, Singapore's history must be seen in the context of larger forces, larger countries in the region, you see. So sometimes uh, if the fo these forces are favourable to us, uh, we prosper like in the 13th, 14th century and then uh, later when there's a shift, uh, uh, such as when uh, uh, Singapore was attacked by, was it the Thais or something, then then the trading patterns shifted away again, you know, and then we all declined. There seems to be ups and downs a few times. Uh. So projecting that to the future, do you think that we are still very vulnerable to regional powers? The good thing about being a historian is you look backwards only. So <laughs> no, but, but, but the, point, the point of my story is that there will always be these ebbs and flows in history. And that, you know, any society, if you take Singapore, any society, cannot be divorced from the forces that, you know, uh, sort of function outside it. We are not a civilizational-sized country. We are a small port city, and we've evolved from a kind of a trading port to a feeder port to an emporium, and then eventually becoming a country. But we are not a civilization. So the, 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 the destiny of this, of this place has to be tied to the larger forces that operate outside us. And I think this is something which a lot of people don't appreciate. They think that we are just like any other country. So, so what? If you close Singapore, Singapore would be fine. But the point is that there are all these things that shape how we should behave and how we should be conducting our businesses. So I've tried to tell you the story in 700 years. Project 700 more years and I will be quite sure that you're going to see cyclical changes again. Maybe not of the same type or order, but you're going to see rise and fall of powers, you're going to see changing permutations around the region, and they all will have an impact on Singapore. There's no question about it. How do you respond? I think that's for the leadership, I guess, and uh, the, the, to, 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 to kind of uh, strategize you know, in terms of anticipating the changes around us. Thank you. Next question, please. We have a lot more time, more than 20 minutes. So, please take advantage. Yes, thank you. All right, please go ahead. 
Good evening. There's another one behind too, huh? Okay. You may have it first. Uh, good evening, Prof Tan. Thank you for your lecture. Uh, my name is Adrian. I'm from MOE. Um, you mentioned that uh, it might be timely to uh, explore the history of the 1950s and 1960s. Um, but now increasingly there seems to be this uh, slightly more polarized uh, sentiment about this. And it, it almost seems as if anyone who wants to try to uh, understand a little bit more of the uh, plurality of uh, opinions and options back then is automatically branded anti-establishment and trying to, uh, you know, uh, go against the, the, the prevailing narrative and all that. How will we be able to get our, um, you know, our people to uh, explore this in a, perhaps a more uh, academic manner that doesn't uh, give rise to all these uh, polarizing kinds of uh, sentiments? Thank you. I, I think there is uh, some concern or some fears, in my view, largely unfounded, that the Singapore government doesn't want us to do research in particular. I, I, I've, in, in my years, although I did say that I, I was a latecomer to Singapore history, uh, but I've written on Singapore history on the period of the merger, I've, I've never for one moment been told that you can't do this or you can't do that. I think it, it's up to me to write what I want to write as a good historian, be intellectually honest, do proper research, and then defend my position. Uh, I'll tell you a personal story. I mean, I wrote uh, the, the history of merger uh, between Singapore and, and, and Malaysia, and I deliberately did not want to show any of my drafts before it was published to the powers that be, because I wanted it to be my interpretation based on sources. Of course, there was a lot of work to be done. You know, you had to comb the, the British colonial archives and then the Singapore archives and, and try to get as much material as possible. Then you write what, in your view, is the most uh, informed uh, account based on your research, based on your interpretation. And then when the book was published, and then I said, well, let it be read. And if people were to challenge my view, I will either defend it, and if I'm wrong, I'll admit I'm wrong, and then maybe this will open the space for more research. And that's how historical work should, should be seen. I mean, nobody has the last word on a historical uh, you know, interpretation, and that should be how it, it, it should happen. But of course, there are, there are challenges, I, I admit. You know, access to materials, access to archives. And this is where I think, as good scholars, we should try to keep pushing and try to ask for access to the archives, and then basically, once that happens, do a good, intellectually honest kind of uh, studies, and then be prepared to be challenged and respond, and then also be humble enough to realize that um, your interpretation may be wrong, and then be prepared to change. Because I'm very sure that there'll be many more books on the period of the 50s and the 60s, and what I'm calling out for is research, is research robust research. You don't have to follow a particular sort of official agenda, but I think as long as you're prepared to do research, I think you'll be fine. So uh, I've, I've supervised many students writing on the 50s and 60s, and I think they've been fine. The only complaint they have, um, which I accept, is sometimes accessible access to materials, but I think this is a structural thing which we can overcome at some point in time. If I may add, you should not underestimate the power of the people in shaping your history. When I was a student in 1970, I remembered that we had a first attempt to educate our school children about the history of Singapore. So we had the Department of History being asked to write a book entitled Our Forefathers, Pioneers of Singapore. 
the book came out, apparently there was some section of the community who are not very happy with it, and the book was subsequently withdrawn. And mind you, this book is supposed to be come, coming from the top, from the leadership. The people didn't accept it. They have their own interpretation of history, and they put it on record. And I think that has got to be the kind of openness that when you're talking about when you talk about history. Now I have received this uh, written question, but I will give it to, to our gentleman up there first, because you came forward first. Please. Good I'm Yichun from MOE as well. I'd just like to ask about something that you mentioned earlier, which is the history of neighborhoods. I find that quite interesting, but at the same time, I'm not sure in Singapore, given our small size and seemingly homogeneous communities living around uh, the areas, um, how do we actually explore the history of neighborhoods in Singapore and what, what are some recommendation, recommendations that you have for us to uncover um, histories of specific areas in Singapore and what can we gain from that? Thank you. I think it's very important to understand the history of our neighborhood. Uh, you know, um, for a while, uh, when I was a student at the uh, history department at NUS, um, there, there, were the, there were the only occasional courses on Southeast Asian history of Malaya, Indonesia, but not much else. I chose to go into Indian history because I was fascinated with what was happening in India, and there were, of course, people studying Chinese history. But the preoccupation was with the West. There were lots of people wanting to know American history, European history, British history, whatever. You. But I think the time has now come for us to also understand this region because it is so important to us. But I tell you the difficulty. You got to know the languages. Because if you want to write Indonesian history, you can't just use English alone. You want to write Malayan history, you can't just use English alone. For that matter, Thai and so on. So it is not easy, and that's why people find it daunting. They'd rather just use uh, English sources and just write an account from a European perspective. But if you want to study deep history of a region, you need to master the language and then spend time. You know. I, I don't know whether you all get the impression that historians have life easy. Actually, it's not easy. <laughs> historians work very hard. You know? they, they work very hard. And you, know, you spend time in the archives, you get to know the society, you, 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 you get the, the cultural sensitivity, then you have to learn the language, and then you spend a lot of hours in archives just reading and writing. That's the hard work, but it will yield result. And I would encourage the young among you who have the energy, the, 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 the desire, to do that. Um, I think there is interest. But it's not uh, easy, but I would encourage that this be taken up because you know we cannot just look like navel gazing, right? Just keep looking inside and try to understand the Singapore story from outside. How we fit with the region, how we relate with the region, how the, re how the region is and developing is something that we need to understand um, quite deeply as well. So I encourage all of you who have the desires to please pursue that. Thank you, Prof. I have this question coming from outside, uh, from uh, Ms. Nutan Shah. The question is, with 2019 being 200 years since Raffles landed, and uh, Prof Tan's message that the history of Singapore should and could be more self-discovery, stories passed down by a generation, what message can we share in 2018 in readiness for next year, 2019? 
So uh, I, I, I believe members of the Singapore Bicentennial Office are in, in, in the audience and I, I, you know, I will point them out if I can spot them. But the, po the point is, I think one of the approaches that the, the SBO, as, we are as they are called, has taken is to try to get histories from, from the, the people as well. So this is not a state-curated narrative. This is not a narrative where you know, someone sitting in some ministry is drawing out that this is what you've got to know. Um, Yes, there is some narrative that's being developed, but I think what um, the SBO would like to see are also stories of people, of communities, of institutions, of schools are being fed into this. I think Mr. Yatiman and I sit on the advisory council, and this is something that we've been advocating for uh, since the beginning, that it cannot just be a story told by the state, but it must be a story of the people who have been involved in this journey together. And we hope that there will be many. So you, if you are interested, I think I Come and see me after the lecture and I can give you the contact of the people that you should write to and offer your ideas and then we'll see how we can incorporate it into the overall narrative. I think uh, we are encouraging every individual in Singapore to put in writing their own personal experience, whether going through the Japanese occupation period after Madeka and so on. And to encourage that, I'm sure that the National Heritage Board and the National Arts Council are keen to sponsor your book, depending whether they are uh, the type that meets their criteria. If it is an art, short stories about history of Singapore, then you go to NAC. If it is about your personal experience, which I've seen quite a number of books they publish, you can go to the NHB. Yeah. They will be helping you. I hope you, you don't mind, just give me 30 seconds more. I'm going to do a pitch of another project which I'm heading, and this is called The Future of Our Past. Now, this uh, project was actually, it was actually uh, proposed by the Ministry of Education, um, hoping that young people would try to reflect on what they think of Singapore's history. So, uh, some money was given to us at Yale NUS, and we are then uh, leading this project. And there are about 12 or 15 projects um, that are done by young Singaporeans um, that cover a whole range of areas, very interesting areas. There's one graphic novel that's going to be produced on the Kristang language, the lost Kristang language. There are people finding their identity through that. There's something on the HDB and uh, the transitions of the HDB. There's something of love stories, you know, of people, love stories, and of uh, schools that have been merged, neighborhoods change. And these are led by young people. And what we do is in guiding them is to just give them some uh, guidance on historical methods and research. But these are driven by young people. Now, they will be able to sort of uh, show their research um, in early 2019. And this is an example of how history uh, by people uh, can find expression. And I think there are lots of opportunities for this sort of thing. I, think I have three people standing. You, you get the first followed by the lady there, and then I will come in with two written questions coming from outside before you go to the last person. Is that right? Yeah, please proceed. Hi, I'm Irene Ho. I, write, I teach. Um, what you said just now about opening up the archives, I found very interesting. Would you like to elaborate on that? <laughs> well, you know, I could give a full lecture on this, you know. <laughs> You see, the, the, the thing about, you know, in, in Singapore, we have, uh, I think it's a Heritage Act or something like that, where it is required after a certain number of years uh, for official documents to be transferred to the National Archives, and then we open up for researchers. 
Um, not all ministries, I say, follow that and for various reasons. Now, uh, I've been involved with some of my colleagues sitting in the audience in trying to declassify, declassify official records after a period of 20, 25 or 30 years. And sometimes it's an uphill battle. Some I can understand. There are sensitivities, you know, um, security issues and all this. And sometimes people's families are involved. So we, 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 are, we appreciate that. But sometimes it's just a simple logistical issue because a lot of ministries, from my experience, do not know where the archives are. You know, basically, you know, they, 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 they really haven't systematically been archiving their materials. Now, I'll be the first to own up that I've worked in the, I, I mean, I'm a member of the history department at NUS, and if I were to go to the history department now and say, can I find something um, of the 1950s, we will have difficulties finding it. Because in a move and all this, you know, how, because we don't have an archival culture. You know, people say, these are just records, they put it aside, put it aside, and after that, they get lost. And so maybe that's part of the reason. Now, with greater consciousness and perhaps a more systematic approach, hopefully we'll get it right for the future. But now, it's a bit of an uphill struggle, but they're still there. And I think the archives, the National Library Board, will continue to work with the various agencies to see how we can, they can try to open up as much as possible. I'm not trying to present a sanguine kind of a situation and say it's all there. I'm saying that it's going to be a bit difficult because in that transition of the last 30 years, um, I don't think things have been systemat systematically archived. That's my sense. Thank you, Ms. Irene Ho. I think uh, you can be assured that there would be a better opportunities now. Please, now, your turn. Hi, very good evening to Professor Tan and Mr. Yatuman. My name is Frances. I'm a first-year student at Yale NUS College. So before I came to the university, I actually had the privilege to teach at a secondary school, mm -hmm. and I taught history to secondary one students. That was the first time I actually noticed pre-1819 Singapore history being in textbooks. So my question is, do we think that this is a very good move towards a breakaway from a dominant narrative that we're very used to? Or is there a potential pitfall, I would say, where we will construct a dominant narrative of pre-1819 Singapore instead? Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think what I, will, what I would say is that the, the, the more we broaden that narrative, the more we uh, enlarge it chronologically, spatially, the better it is for us because we then understand the complexity much better. I don't think you're going to see the replacement of one dominant narrative over with another. I think the idea is that, you know, as I explained earlier, in the, 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, uh, because of the... Uh, pressures of nation building, state building, you know, they had to construct a, a very, in a way, a, a, straight, a, a story of a straight arrow trajectory. But now as society matures and as young people like you want to know more and are more curious, then I think the broadening of that narrative will become uh, necessary. So, um, you know, it, it may not even stop at uh, 700 years, it may be eight, 900 years once more research are done and we have more evidence. So that's what we should be doing all the time, pushing the boundaries as far as possible. But at the same time, understanding how all this ties together. That's the other challenge. You know, how does it make sense to us as a country? And that's not easy. But I think it's a happy problem when we have more and a more complex story, then let's deal with it when the time comes, rather than not to have a past at all and then trying to understand what, what do we stand for as a people. This is the question as a follow-up to uh, Eric from, N, from the MOE. Question reads, how would you recommend non-history trained people to reconcile, at least make sense of differing accounts of history? Wow. 
<laughs> this is a cop-out. Huh? So basically, I think what you should do is open up your minds and just read. You know? and, and don't, no, 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 listen. Don't read just historical texts written by boring historians like me. I think you, know, you should try to engage history in its wider sense. Start with Netflix. Go and watch the historical dramas. Enjoy the historical dramas because you learn a lot from this. And then read literature that are based on history. You know, some of the best historical accounts, in my view, are written by literature, you know, novelists. But they are so rich in detail and so beautifully written. They get you hooked. And then you broaden, I think, your staple to include more things. That's the best way to do it. Get hooked first. Get interested first. Get engaged first. And then you go and find more. Um, if you just go for the very dry academic textbook, it may turn you off because you say, oh, you know, so many footnotes, I don't know where to start. But the point, the, the point is that get engaged and then you'll find that actually history is all around us. And once you enjoy that, then I think the rest should be easy. So start with a good appetizer. Start with a good appetizer. And then when the staple comes, I think you'll be okay. I had received a signal to say time is up, but anyway, I think we allow one last question. Yes, okay, good, that's good. <laughs> Hi, I'm Hazim. I'm a first year at Yale and US College as well. Um, my question comes from the fact that we've just recently celebrated SG50, and now we've come to the bicentennial. There's been growing interest in history, but to what extent is it influenced by the milestones that Singapore has received, and how do we sustain this growing interest in history to, to build like a culture amongst the youths especially, to provide, to look inwards in Singapore, and it, uh, in the context of the lecture, Singapore and its place in Southeast Asia? I think it's a function of time. You know, it, it, you, you see how Singapore society has evolved. You know, in, in the 70s, my father never spoke to, about, to us about history. I mean, he had no time. He was trying to make a living and, and trying to pay for his HDB flat. You know? But I think now, as, as people become more affluent, as Singaporeans become more matured, more settled, and, and, and more confident as a people, they want to know their past. So I think... You know, I guess governments are always finding anniversaries to celebrate, right? So SG50 was a very natural one. So now it's uh, uh, bicentennial and, and who knows what's... But the point is that we should take this as opportunities. We should take this as opportunities for us to say, okay, let's pause for a moment and think. Why 200 years? Why not 700 years? Why are we celebrating it this way and not that way? As I said at the beginning of my lecture, it should be a way of reflecting and thinking about our history. And in that way, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. When, I, when I'm doing the, the future of our past, when I'm sitting in the bicentennial office, when I'm talking to young people, when I'm attending history classes, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of excitement. And I think this is a good sign that history will flourish. And I think do not be, do not be discouraged by uh, unfounded fears that, oh, only certain types of histories are allowed in Singapore. I think that's unfounded. So let's try, push the boundaries, see what happens. You know, what, what can happen? I mean, the book gets closed, right? And uh, not, not, but I don't think that's going to happen. So do good history, do good history that is based on solid research, do good studies, and I think that's okay. I think there will be a flourishing of historical interpretations. And even if the interpretations vary, I think that's what we need to deal with. The world is complex, and we must understand that complexity. Well, if your statement is a reflection of the mode now, we are very happy that there is an increasing interest to understand our nation's history. With that remark, I think uh, we would like to thank Prof. Tan Tayong and join me in thanking him, please.
Thank you, Mr. Yatiman and Professor Tan. Professor Tan's next lecture will be on 31st October. Details will be on our website. We hope to see you then. Good evening and thank you to everyone.